The title of Brother Mark's exhortation is Comfort in Paradox, Restoration in the Kingdom. Please give me your careful attention. We've looked at some pretty heart-rending things this weekend, and you would think that the focus on these afflictions is something that is reserved for certain times and places, but is it really good for me to consider? We've shown the contrast between affliction and comfort, and, and how comfort is something that, um, in a spiritual sense, addresses affliction but through the strength to take it, to endure through it, and through the hope of the future. You may not have realized this if you are relatively new among Christadelphians, that what we've been speaking about the entire time is the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's good news because it promises to rectify every issue, every problem, every need that men have in this world take everything that's all messed up in this world and straighten it out and make the world a place that is restored to its original state when it was like a garden everywhere, when the Spirit of God moved across the face of the deep and there was the presence of the Lord as if he is with us. That's the idea of the kingdom of God. You should ask yourself, if this makes sense to me, do I have a place in that future? But I like to help the Lord when he becomes king. Go to all places of the world and feed the hungry. A way to deal with that question for yourself would be, would, if I had the opportunity and the power and the means, the resources to do that now, and I knew that there were millions of people starving in a foreign country, or that there, was, there were girls that could be rescued from a horrible kidnapping, or that there were children who were afraid to go to school, if I had the power to help, would I do that? If the answer to that question is yes, then all the more so would you be able to affirm the idea that God has offered you the power to do that in the future. So when you are new among us, or if you have uh, not really seriously considered your place in all the things that we've been speaking about, um, you you would give serious consideration to the, the reality of having the opportunity to do this in the kingdom of God. And that would be sometime not in the nebulous regions of distant future, but in the very near future. Uh, There's so much prophetic evidence that the Lord is about to return uh, that this promise that, that was embodied in the question the disciples asked Jesus after he came back from the dead, they said, they're with him for 40 days, and they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And well, he said, well, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but Um, God has fixed everything in his purpose and then he was just taken away and they saw him go and they were standing there and they said, um, staring into the heavens and there were two angels that came there and they said, this same Jesus, why are you staring into the clouds? The same Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner. In other words, he left as as a physical, personal being. He will return as such, not as a spirit, but as king. It's a fitting king, somebody who's not all bound up in the ridiculous politics of this world today, 
but somebody who is suited to the task of taking this world and straightening out every problem that exists in such a way that uh, it will bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And that's the, uh, the hope of restoration in the kingdom. Then again, after thinking, well, that's all good news, and I agree with you, that is really good news, but I've looked at religion, I've kind of seen the pros and cons. I've seen more evil done in the name of religion than any other thing in this world. Even people offering their children as burnt offerings in the name of some religion. It seems like there have been wars throughout history that were fought for religious causes. Um, And then on a more intimate level, I don't know a God who answers prayer necessarily. Um, I've made some prayers and it didn't seem to me that they came out the way I, I thought they would. Those are very real questions. They all have answers. Today what we're going to do is focus on some of the paradoxes that come up in affliction where everything you would normally think about prayer and about God's protection and guidance and his love and his justice um, doesn't turn out to be the way it, it seems it should be. It's very easy, for example, like Job, that when you get blindsided with a, an extreme set of trials, in his case they were over the top, that you you call God's justice into question and, and, and you, 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 you look at yourself and say, uh, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to those school children? Why did it happen to these young girls that were kidnapped? Why did it happen to that nation? Why is that nation full of rubble when the people used to have restaurants and houses and apartments and, and enjoy the goodness at least of their own natural lives in their land? When all these things are looked at, a lot of questions come up that involve the paradoxes of faith. So we're going to take a look at those paradoxes of of the afflictions that we go through personally and that may be a part of the questions you have about God, is he real, is he really loving, is his justice a a true thing or is it um, full of contradiction that I can see and that I don't understand. Those are all the questions that are at the root of faith, they form the foundation of faith when they are resolved. So we are here now to consider the answers as we look at this big picture of restoration in the kingdom. Um, Did you know that in the Bible, the word affliction is also translated narrow? I mean, everything we've said about affliction, would you think that the same word that comes out in the English language as affliction would come out in the English language as narrow. What on earth does narrow have to do with the kinds of things that we've been thinking about? Well, you remember Jesus used that particular word to describe what it's like to have faith, to follow him, to say, you know, I believe this. And so I'm going to see if I can't enter through a door that he said is now open to me and walk down a path that he said is the way to truth and life. So he said in that context, enter in at the straight gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. 
But the straight is the gate and narrow. There's that word. Narrow is the way which leads unto life and few there be that find it. So would you have thought that Jesus was saying um, that straight is the gate and afflicted is the way? The, lang- the way the language comes through in, the, in, in English doesn't really convey what Jesus is saying. It falls short of being clear. And that's not to say that Jesus was not very clear in everything he said. His words were perfect. They were perfectly chosen. And I think in many times when you have a case like this where you don't really quite get the sense of what he's saying from the English rendition of it, um, it still works on all levels. So people think they get the idea that to, to live a life that follows after Christ is going to be, you're going to have to be straight. That would be the simple interpretation of this, the the straight language that we're using here. And that the, the gate um, is, is straight. In other words, straight and narrow means it's on course in a simplistic interpretation of this line. But let's take a look at what Jesus really is saying if he's saying narrow is the way. There's two words here, straight and narrow. The gate is straight and narrow is the way. Well, what's the gate? As we said before, the gatekeeper and the gate is the ingress and egress into the house of God. He said, God's got a big house and it's got a lot of venues all over the world. And Jesus said, in my father's house are many venues. It's worldwide now that that it's been taken out of Israel and offered to the Gentiles. For 2,000 years, it's been spreading all across the world. It's a big house because it's a spiritual house or temple. And it has a lot of rooms in it, or a lot of venues, places where people assemble to think about God. Just like today, this is one of the rooms in that house. The gate is the entrance to that house. And that would mean that when you come to the door of God's house, a spiritual temple, and you think about maybe going inside, and staying inside, living inside that house, in one of those rooms, then... What he's saying is there's a certain characteristic to entering that gate. And in this case, the word straight means it has obstacles. It's almost, you wouldn't get obstacles out of the word straight any more than you get affliction out of the word narrow. But he's saying it's gonna, there's going to be an obstacle to your entering that house. So if you've stood on one side and then come through, you know that there are all sorts and you've watched other people stand on one side of that gate and then come through that gate into God's house. You know there are obstacles in the way of things you're thinking, well, you know, maybe not right now. I'm not sure I want to walk in there and sit in there for the rest of my life because on the outside of this house, there are certain things and conditions that are working on me and on the inside of the house, there'll be other things and conditions that are going to kind of like make, maybe make restrictions, put me in, a, in an uncomfortable position, but nevertheless... What, what you can readily see in the reality of what he's saying is, yeah, there's obstacles in the way of going through that gate. And then the part that we don't want to think about we, is hard to admit, but is as true as tomorrow. And that is that the, the way that you follow once it, beyond that gate is full of affliction. That's the part that we're supposed to understand. It's what he's trying to get across to us. So he says, beloved, do not think it strange. This is elsewhere uh, coming from uh, the inspired word of the Lord. Don't think it's strange if there's obstacles and afflictions, which in this context he refers to as fiery trials. Don't think that's strange. 
As if people who just live normal lives out in the world don't have fiery trials. They do. The difference is they don't have any hope. You come through that gate and enter that way, the fiery trials are in the context of a hope that anchors you in every respect for anything that can come up. Hence, he is the God of all comfort. So he says, don't think something strange has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are partaking of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And the point there is, entering discipleship has obstacles. Or as Jesus put it to one man, it's going to cost you. And he said elsewhere, well, you should count the costs. And once you've counted the cost, you make the investment. And once you've made the investment, you have to understand you have everything in the world to gain. Because if Jesus was promised the extents of the world as his inheritance, and you are heirs with him according to the promises to Abraham, then that promise conveys to you and you are an heir to the extents of the world. In other words, you will take part ownership in the entire planet Earth. And if you hate the way things are now and you love the thought, the idea of this world's redemption, you would not be able to resist the offer of participating in that inheritance. That is yours for the taking in faith. But the entering has obstacles and the way is strewn with afflictions. This was the path that Jesus followed to, to, to sort of lead the way. When he said, I'm the way, the truth and the life, he led the way and he proved to us the point of those afflictions. When you make, when you address the afflictions like he did, all kinds of things emerge from that in the context of that affliction that are worthwhile, that provide hope, that, that flesh out this vision of the future, that provide the details necessary to understand this is true, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from the mouth of the creator and sustainer of the universe. So we'll be walking in his steps. We're going to experience the same things. Let's look at some discouraging perceptions that come out. And I got these mainly from, I asked Amy, what was it about your faith that didn't work when Dominic died, when, when everything fell apart for you? And you said, well, everything you thought about the way God was working with us didn't really turn out to be, to be what actually happened. When you needed him the most, it didn't really seem like he was there. When you thought he was protecting your son, he let him die. Um, what were those paradoxes? What were the verses that... Um, seemed strange to you in, in the midst of this horrible tragedy. And so she told me, well, I had a problem with this, I had a problem with this, I always thought this about this point, and I didn't understand this. Once Dominic died, I had prayed for his protection, and, and God didn't protect him. So there were verses that caused her to believe that she had a certain kind of relationship with God that would, would, would transfer to the, 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 the watchful eye and protection of the Lord over her son, and that's not what happened. When that happens, that can make you say, do I really want to go through that gate? Do I want to walk along that way and take those afflictions? Is that me or can I just go you know, have my, make a party out of my life and travel a lot and the world is my oyster and we'll have some good meals, we'll do some good things, we'll have some fun, I'll make a little bit of a difference in somebody's life and then there you are, that's your life. And at the end of it, whatever good you did fades and evaporates into the past when the memory of you fades after your demise. So these were some of these spiritual paradoxes that came up in that discussion. Comfort um, was first used in scripture to, to describe Noah. Uh, yet the problem with that whole story is God destroyed all flesh off the face of the earth and only saved eight people. So where's there any comfort in that? 
That's a paradox. Um, these are scriptural paradoxes. Esau was comforted by thoughts of vengeance when he thought, you know, I'm going to kill my brother. He, he, he cheated me out of my inheritance. I'm going to kill the guy. Jacob found out and he had to, he had to, he had to take off out of there. And um, yet it says he was comforted by his vengeance. Does that sound like something that's good to you? There's a paradox there. I'm going to take a look at that. Comfort seems a little bit more elusive when you need it the most. When Amy needed comfort the most, there was no comfort to be found. And this is common in the most severe of tragedies. I mean, everybody works with stress and distress. Um, similarly, in some cases, in, in many cases, and also differently, depending on how you're wired and what your perceptions of things are. But it seems to be not there when you need it the most. If you live any time in the truth, if you follow after this way, you enter that gate, you follow, you're going to see that this is, is one of the most perplexing parts about life and the truth. Especially if you go way down. You're going to be looking for deliverance from God and just doesn't seem to be there. When you need comfort, just doesn't seem to be there. So that's another paradox. Another one is, um, we're promised whatever we ask in prayer. And then the answers turn out to be different. So how do you make sense out of that paradox? Amy had prayed while Dominic was in college for her son, for God to protect her son while he was away from home. And he dies in an accident down there in 15 minutes. What does that mean? We're promised whatever we ask in prayer. What happened? It doesn't seem to be true. Did the Bible lie to me? You know, Amy could not figure out how it was if she prayed for his protection, God let him die when he promised the answer to her prayer. So that's a paradox that needs to be resolved, doesn't it? And then there was uh, this promise that there's an angel of the Lord that camps around you and will deliver you. Um, and yet, you have one fiery trial after another. There are peaks and valleys in life. The, the, the peaks are pretty nice, but the valleys are awful. And you got to wonder, so where's the encamping angel? If Where was that angel when I was in the pits of despair? So let's take a look at these and see if we can make a simple resolution to what we're thinking about. Take these paradoxes, put them in context of Scripture, and resolve them in context. In context, not only of, of their immediate context in scripture but in the context of everything we've been talking about using hope for strength instead of for deliverance how can it be said that noah was a comfort i mean this was from his birth the idea about noah and his name was he was going to be a comfort and then everybody in the world gets destroyed he saves animals instead of men and there are only eight people saved this is where the idea of comfort and the name of Noah come together in the Bible. In Genesis 5.29, Noah's name means rest. He was named rest specifically because Lamech said, his dad, this one will comfort us. There's sort of a prophetic side to this concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the, of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So there's two things going on in this. Lamech seemed to understand that there would be a prophetic comfort that would come from Noah because God had cursed the ground. So there's a relationship between the curse of the flood and the comfort that Noah would provide. And what is that comfort? Well, it turns out, and everybody knows how the story ends, that once they, the ark came to rest, 
God came to Noah and he said, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth and the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember the covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of the earth and the water shall never again destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant when the rainbow is in the cloud. So this is, is, was the beginning of God's promise to save everybody instead of destroy everybody. And again, it was in the context of this global affliction of the destruction of the flood. So that's how it's resolved that Noah became a comfort. It was to Noah that God began to, to fully express this covenant of salvation of the earth and its people. So then there's the paradox of vengeance being there in Esau in the form of comfort. How is there any comfort in vengeance? So this is where this comes up. And the words of Esau, her older son, Rebecca's older son, were, were told to Rebecca. So somebody came and they said, this is what Esau said. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Well, there was nothing righteous about that. That was just all about jealousy and the absence of faith in Esau and the trickery of the deception and the goat skin on his arm and uh, Esau selling his, his inheritance, his birthright, which was embodied in the promises of God for a bowl of soup and you know all that. There's no righteousness in Esau's vengeance. So how do you, how do you take this paradox that she would use the word comfort in connection with his vengeance and make it and turn it into a scriptural principle. How would you do that? Well, here's how you do it. Look at how in righteousness justice actually provides comfort. Because what Esau was looking for was justice, however perverse in his heart, it's still justice. When he said, when Jesus says this, and Je this is speaking of Jesus in Isaiah, and he quoted this of himself: "The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek." So there's good news. That's what we've been talking about. The glad tidings of the kingdom to people who are meek enough to listen to it and understand in, in the honesty of their hearts that this is for them. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So there's the answer to all the suffering in the world. Why he is the God of all comfort. Because Jesus has been sent to bind up the brokenhearted. And to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And look what makes that year acceptable. What he says next. And the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't, doesn't stop there. There's the acceptable year of our Lord. And he, he made a reference to himself uh, with that side of the verse in Nazareth. And then they thought to throw him over the cliff for saying that. And then he comes along and he stopped. In Isaiah, the, the completion of that thought is the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. In other words... There's going to be a day of recompense. There's going to be a day of reckoning of where the justice of God comes into this world through the judgments of Jesus and takes care of all the oppressors and all those people who have caused the trouble in this world and wipes them out. And that, that will be the remedy of this world and it will comfort this world. You, in the same way that people who watch an execution of some horrible person that took the innocent member of their family out of their lives uh, when, when they sit in that execution, there's some kind of justice that they get from realizing that justice has been found and met with this person. 
and they are comforted by it. It's an execution that comforts them because they know this person will never harm anyone else again. The same thing will be true of the oppressors of this world, the people who make the wars, the people who uh, cause all the horrible things to happen um, in the viciousness of their violence, in the noise of their violence. It will be a great comfort to all the people who have suffered at the hand of these evil men to know that they have been dealt with by God, that justice will have been served in that time. So that's the resolution of vengeance and comfort. Um, but what happens when comfort is needed and it's the last thing that is found? You ju- it just doesn't seem to be there where even hope doesn't address the sorrow that is so deep in the affliction. When sorrow overwhelms comfort, God understands, but when you feel this way, his understanding doesn't even help. Knowing that he understands doesn't help. I mean, it, it should help. It, it kind of applies to the intellect, and later on maybe it helps, but not in the immediate sense. This comes through in the words of Jeremiah when he said, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Um, it also comes through in the Psalms where David says, I cry aloud to God and he, he will hear me. So David knew that God heard his prayer, but if he hears the prayer, where's the comfort? Is this the idea here? Because he says, I sought the Lord in my day of trouble and I refused to be comforted. Sometimes comfort is only found in hope. When there is nothing left to bring comfort into your heart, when your heart is broken, hope is the only thing that can enter in as comfort. And the issue, the issue that people have with hope is it doesn't take the misery away. But what hope does do, as we've said repeatedly in this whole series, is it offers strength to endure through the affliction. And that then converts into a comfort that's not the same kind of comfort as natural comfort. And then there's, if God is silent, Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seems like a, a promise that applies to all prayer, but the answer turns out to be something entirely different. You pray for protection and all you get is a, is a fatal accident. So the principle is this, that God hears prayer. I'm going to show you why I say this. But he's not the servant of your prayer. God is a mighty God. He stands as the supreme being of this universe. And he doesn't, he's not there to serve our prayers. That is not his purpose. It's not the purpose of prayer. He's not the servant of our prayers. Even Jesus, the Son of God, this guileless soul, this perfect man, received different answers from his prayers. This is the account of that. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he went on to his crucifixion. He went on to the horrible torture of being nailed to a cross, first being beaten to a pulp, um, all the energy drained from him, carrying the cross across, across town, falling under its weight, um, having Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene pick it up for him, taken to the place where he laid himself down upon that cross. They went drove nails through his hands and through his feet. And he understood what he was doing. He prayed that it wouldn't happen. But now the very thing he prayed against is happening to him. Does, does this not show that God is not the servant of prayer? God serves his purpose. 
And his purpose involves all the things that we may not understand, that we understand in the first place, and that we may not understand in our relationship with God. In other words, our prayers don't control God. God controls our prayers and their answers. He's in total control, as he was with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the question of the angel of the Lord that's encamping around us and should be delivering us. That's the idea. Um, We ask to be delivered from evil. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, pray like this, lead me not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Right? So we think that that prayer correlates to the promise that the angel of the Lord encamps around them that fear him. So that's the paradox, is what happens when that didn't appear to be the case? Well, let's look at this a little bit more closely. There's the verse, the angel of the Lord encamps around all who fear him and delivers them. That seems to be straightforward enough. Does the Bible mean what it says or is God, you know, kind of like playing with us with words? Doesn't really keep his word. Well, if it depends on the meaning of the word deliverance, the answer to this paradox. If we think delivers means it prevents it from happening, that's one outcome. But if deliverance actually means to arm us, to fortify us, our hearts, when they are broken, to equip us with what is necessary to withstand the weight of this burden, to strengthen us in the face of a horrible weakness and to prepare us um, even in advance and for the outcome of a tragedy, Um, then the deliverance that is offered by the angel of the Lord is different. Let's see if we can find an example of this. How angels provide deliverance. The best place to look is in the life of Christ. Here's a promise that was made Uh, even seems to be more clear than the one we were just looking at about general angelic protection. This is what was said of Christ and it came up in the wilderness. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Really? Is that what happened in the crucifixion? Is that what was at his exchange with the Pharisees? No evil shall befall you. Would you say that of reading the account of Jesus? Was it not evil? Did the, the gospel not break his heart? Did he not die of a broken heart? How could he say that no evil would befall him? Jesus knew this was true. How do you make it true? How do you resolve the the paradox? Nor shall any plague come near you, your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And when he was in the wilderness, this very verse came up as a temptation because it didn't seem to be occurring quite like this. This sounds like full protection. And yet, where's the full protection if you have nothing but accusation, false accusation, men who are seeking to destroy you, people that don't understand you, and in the end, your persecution and crucifixion. You die like a common criminal. So he knew that, and this was a looming temptation to Jesus. So where is the angel of the Lord in all this that would encamp around him and deliver him? How was Jesus delivered? Well, he was visited by angels, both in the wilderness and in the garden. And this is how they delivered him. In the wilderness, then the devil left him. Temptations were gone. And immediately angels came and began to serve him. They made food for him. I think they hugged him. They sat down. They said, sit down. Let's let's talk about all this now. They served him. They helped him understand the meaning of his temptations They took him a little bit further and as a result of that intercourse, I think his temptations departed from him. They didn't come back. 
until the garden. In the garden, he's got the worst temptation of all. He doesn't want this to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He had read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He knew that he was going to be reduced to the basest of conditions in the hatred of evil men. Bulls of Bashan, dogs surrounding him, spitting at him, cursing him, mocking him, killing him, and glad to do it. Happy to destroy this innocent, loving young man. But they were there, these angels of the Lord, and they delivered him, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Angel came down, probably put his arm around him. May have been the same one. He would have recognized him for that time in the desert. And he said something to him that strengthened him. Maybe he just sat with him and maybe he took his hand in his. Maybe he hugged him. And he said, it's almost done, but think of what you will do if you, if you go through with this. Think of it. You know the prophecies. You know what God's purpose is in this. Let's, let's have the strength to go through. And there he was comforted because the angel of the Lord was encamping right around him and did deliver him, but he didn't take the crucifixion away. That's the big point for you and your affliction. You will be comforted. The angel of the Lord will be there. So who who is this angel? We would say, well, that's fine for Jesus. We know an angel visited him. He's the son of God. There's these angelic visitations. They're literal, but don't recall ever seeing an angel of the Lord come and visit me when I need him, you know, to hear or have a conversation with an angel. Doesn't happen that way with us, does it? How does it happen with us? Well, there's several things we can think about to resolve this particular paradox. I think this is the biggest paradox of all. As our high priest, there's an angel in heaven who said, I will be with you always. I'll be with you right to the end. I'll be near to you. I'll be so near that when you say a prayer, I will be the intermediary between you and God and your prayers will always be heard. I know how you feel. I was touched with the feeling of your infirmities. I'm there for you. Surely they are my people, Isaiah says, speaking on the surface about Israel and the angel that led them through the wilderness, but prophetically because of its context in Isaiah 63 of Jesus and his high priesthood. They are my people, children who will not lie. In all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. So let's translate this into a prophecy. Who are his people, this high priest? Those are people like you and me who love him for what we know he did for us, who who dedicate our lives to him, make a public confession. We get baptized, show everybody. This is the turning point of our lives. We're turning it over to Jesus. Those are his people. These are children who will not lie and they won't lie because they love the truth. If it's true, they're all for it. If it's a lie, they won't have it. That's who, who, who the children are. And the way is is strewn with with obstacles, with afflictions. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, our high priest. And the angel of his presence saved them. Who's the angel of his presence for us now if it's not the comforter? It's a high priest in heaven who is there, immediately there to provide what is needed in the form of strength as an angel that encamps around us and delivers us with hope 
in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. Speaking of things that haven't happened yet as though they were, this is you and me. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and he carried them all the days of old and he delivered them into the kingdom. Just like a child is born from the womb, we have the hope of being born in the spirit of God into the kingdom. There's another aspect to angelic encampment and that is, you may not have realized this, but you might be someone's angel. You could be an elder in an ecclesia, you could be a peer, you could be a young person. You could find somebody whose heart is totally broken. You could find somebody who really needs God, but they don't know how to find him. They didn't know, they know much about the Bible. And you are their messenger. But in Revelation, it is very clear that the elders of the churches were referred to as angels because they were messengers who were carrying the message of God to the fold, Jesus' fold in his household. So they're messengers of hope and strength, and that's what makes them angels. Think about it. I know what happened with Amy and with Dawn and with the other sister who was abused in our ecclesia. There were angels there. They, they, they had no wings. They weren't from heaven. They didn't appear and disappear. They came to, to her and Josh, and they put their arms around her. They, they, they spoke to her with words of assurance, with words of hope. They understood. Sometimes they just sat and cried with her. Whatever it was, it was messengers of hope coming to these people in the form of people who understood the message. So don't ever think that you may not be the angel. Many have entertained angels unawares. Did you ever think that those angels might not be the kind from heaven? They might be the kind from earth? You're talking to somebody about the kingdom. They're in the company of a, of a, a messenger who is like an angel. They're hearing words of salvation. And they're not aware of it. They don't know that this messenger, that is you, or this angel of truth. The point is that angels strengthen hope, but they don't prevent trials. So in conclusion, let's look at the restoration in the kingdom. We have this absolute assurance from God that we saw in this paradox of Noah. There's an everlasting covenant of life and peace. Now, if you take everything out of all, all the, the details, the particulars that are, are in volume too much to take in at once and simplify everything that we've talked about down to this idea, what do I want in my life? I know it's not going to be perfect all the way through. There's going to be trials and tribulations one after another until it's resolved somehow in the future. Do I want life and peace because Jesus is the prince of peace and he's the author of life for you now because he's been given all authority in heaven and earth in his request for his father for your life so there's a day of rain and you know this is such an interesting passage let's read this together and just think about it for a moment in closing I saw as it were the appearance of fire this is in Ezekiel, where, where Ezekiel is looking at God's judgments on the earth, city to city, as Christ and the saints move in their, in their miraculous presence across the face of the earth, judging the nations either positively or negatively. And he says, 
I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about. So this is the presence of God manifested in Jesus and the saints as the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So is the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And we know that that, the, that glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. But have you ever thought about what that glory really is? Glory is a beautiful word, but it's just used so clichéical these days that, that it's, I think its meaning gets lost. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, David says in Psalm 24. So the glory are the hosts. If, if the whole plan of salvation involves God manifestation in a host of people who in the end will fill the earth, those people are his glory, which means the saints are that glory. So let's read this again. In the day of rain, when the appear, with the appearance, so was the appearance of brightness round about. This is the light of Christ filling the earth with the promises of God through his covenant. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The likeness is the likeness of Christ. The glory of, of, of the Lord are those people who are in his likeness. And the Lord is I am who I am. I will be manifested in you. Who would walk away from that idea? So I don't know what the day of rain is. It may, it may be the day that rains righteousness upon the earth and causes all the fruit to grow in the sunshine of Christ's light. Or it may be the rain that puts out the fire of Christ's judgments when they go from city to city and burn up the ones that were unrighteous, like Malachi said. At any rate, this day of rain will be like a paradoxically like a morning without clouds. It will be such a beautiful sunrise. We will return to paradise. The earth will be restored. Every source of affliction, every root that we can suffer from, physical affliction, emotional affliction, mental affliction, spiritual affliction, will resolve in the comfort of what is restored, the renewal of life in the kingdom. There will be recovery from sickness. There will be retrieval of tragic loss when Dominic rises again and looks into his mother's eyes. There will be recompense to the abusers who made people miserable and thought they were getting away with it, but there's a day of judgment in front of them. There will be reconciliation for all the problems that couldn't be resolved in marriage, that couldn't be resolved in families or ecclesias or inter-ecclesial or fellowships or even on a larger level, international um, irreconcilable differences in this case, of ideologies and covetousness. All of that faces the restoration of the kingdom and it will be a highly organized paradise. Not just gardens, but a temple. A temple of such magnificent beauty and such grandeur and size that it's like a city. And the organization in that temple is, is, is just so marvelous to consider. Highly organized. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion... For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Behold, bless the Lord. He's made all these promises to you. Bless him. Take them into your heart and convert them to a blessing for the God that loves you that much. All you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless, bless the Lord. The Lord that made heaven and earth, bless thee out of Zion. Praise ye the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him because that name is your glory. His glory is in your manifestation. 
O ye servants of the Lord, ye stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Did you notice this? Did you see this? Which by night stand in the house of the Lord? I don't know about you, but my understanding of people during nighttime is they lay down. They fall asleep. So something about these people that doesn't appear to need to lay down. They're standing by night in the house of the Lord. My own idea about this is, I don't know if this is really it, but that there are people all over the world who are now immortal, who are governing in all the provinces of the earth, who return to the temple by night in, in, when it's nighttime in their area. And there they meet in the inner portion, they, their tables are set, they have meals with, uh, and they commune with people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe that's the role of the 24 elders. Or commune with each other. I've got a problem in Brazil. I've got a problem in Norfolk. I've got a problem in Pittsburgh. What are we going to do to solve this problem? Well, did you consider this? Joseph, what would you do? Well, here's what I would do. This is what I learned in Egypt. Daniel, what would you do? Well, let me tell you what I learned in Babylon. Nehemiah, what would you do? Well, let me tell you when we were trying to build a wall and in, in, restore the wall in Jerusalem. All these things are, seem to be a part of our life in the kingdom when we stand by night in the house of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's a dream come true. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, for we are glad. The Lord will comfort Zion. This is the bottom line of all of our considerations. The Lord will comfort Zion and you will be there when he does. He will comfort all her waste places in the restoration of the kingdom of God.